Hello everyone and welcome to Beyond Disabilities X. Uh, it's a new series where I speak to inspirational people with disabilities, but unlike the original podcast, this series, all the episodes will have a theme and the very first theme is about females and disabilities. Uh, we'll kick off the show in a second, but please, if you like listening to this podcast, make sure to like, follow, share and subscribe and send a letter by AML Pigeon or email to beyonddisabilitiespodcast at gmail.com. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce my first guest on the series, uh, Sophie and Laura, otherwise known as Girls Interrupting. So thank you both for joining me. Please could you uh, start by introducing yourselves and disabilities? Sophie, can you go first, please? Yes. Hi, I'm Sophie. I am 30, 30 I was going to say 32, 31, <laughs> 31 years old. Um, and I have dyspraxia and ADHD. Um, and, and hi I'm Laura and I'm a whole decade older than Sophie so I'm 41 um, and I have dyspraxia and I'm also diagnosed with autism and non-diagnosed but believe I have ADHD. Well, thank you very much uh, both of you for taking the time uh, to joining me on the podcast. So uh, Sophie can you start first please can you explain uh, when you were first diagnosed uh, with your disabilities and the process of how you were diagnosed? Yes, um, so I always had difficulties um, and I got to the age of 19 before pursuing a formal diagnosis with dyspraxia. Yes. And I think at that time, it wasn't really known about for my parents or myself to to be able to put a name on it. Um, you know, it was only when the internet became started becoming what it is today, and um, where it would have even occurred to them or me to consider the possibility. And um, I pursued a formal diagnosis privately, um, in between jobs, uh, in when I was out of education, and I we paid a private educational psychologist, and I was diagnosed with dyspraxia, mild dyslexia an Erling syndrome and um you know it gave me a, a lot of answers I'm just very very lucky to have been able to go private otherwise I never would have known and uh Laura can you do the same please in Spain when you were first diagnosed and your process of getting uh, your diagnoses yeah sure um and I think I grew up you know with that 10 years difference from Sophie and I think that shows in many ways as well in that um you know I grew up in the 1980s and 1990s yeah. I clearly had um, issues. Um, I mean, dyspraxia, for those that don't know, is primarily a movement and coordination disorder. And I didn't walk. I didn't crawl. I just sat there as a toddler and didn't move. Um, so from a very young age, I was under the hospital from about age two until about age 16, yeah. where they knew I had some quite significant problems, even walking. I struggled to walk um, at all. Um, even as an adult, I still have issues. Um, but they didn't know why in the 1980s. They kept x-raying me and looking for a yeah. physical problem. Um, and I went through school with, you know, assistance and support, but no diagnosis in the 80s because it just didn't exist as a concept. And then in the 90s, because although they recognised that I had special needs, I was achieving well at school academically. So I just don't think they felt there was the need to, to have to do anything. Um, 
but I knew I had dyspraxia at that point and I've always known I'm dyspraxic but I only formally got a diagnosis when I was 39 um, and that was spurred on by the fact that I'd lost my dad so my dad had passed yeah. away and he'd done a lot for me um, and also I'd really realised how dependent I was on some other people in my life for being able to do things and I think losing a parent scares you and makes you realise you know if I was on my own I'd really struggle so I wanted to get it formally recognised the autism diagnosis is much more recent, only in the last few months. And that's much more of a surprise to me. But when I was going through the, the dyspraxia diagnosis and some other research work that I'd done since, the clinicians yeah. kept saying, pretty sure you're autistic as well. And I was like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> um, and yeah, not, not being in complete denial of it, but no. just really not seeing that in myself. And um yeah, I had the diagnosis and apparently I am autistic. So I'm still, um, I think, still coming to terms with it, yeah. not in a negative way, but in understanding what that means for me, I think. No, it's interesting that both of you say, especially with the dyspraxia diagnosis, like you seem uh, to have been, so I got diagnosed, to give you some background, with autism dyspraxia quite early on when I was two years old. And similar to you, Laura, um, it was actually, it wasn't much, although slightly different, uh, it was a, a district nurse came around and was doing her checks and she noticed that I wasn't um, sort of interacting uh, with people and I wasn't um, sort of walking properly and hitting the developmental milestones I should have been. So that's how I got my diagnosis after she recommended my mum pursue it. But hearing you both being diagnosed so late, do you think that, in particular in females do you think there's a it's harder to diagnose even if you think uh, that you've got a potential disability yourself compared to males go to you lot Sophie first I think that you know based on the statistics it does imply that women are, are diagnosed much later in life um, and yeah. you know people's personalities and stereotypes play into it massively I I look back and I don't know whether a part of it for me would have been being in the steps and in a rural area. I think that would have, will have played a part in terms of you no know, people people knowing about certain things and you know we were, I was in a, a very very like small schools you know small smaller classes yeah. and um, yeah I can just whenever I look back really I just I can just see why it was missed and. You know, when 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 parents don't know what to look for, especially in girls, yeah. You know, it just makes me look back how, and I, you know, I don't I don't blame anybody. Um, I just I think things are starting to change slowly, and it's really great to see. No, absolutely, I agree. What about you, Laura? Yeah, what Sophie says really resonates with me as well. Um, I think there's a crucial period of time for diagnosis in childhood, actually. And I think that's where girls get missed, which is in those early years. So, James, you saying, you know, the district nurse had seen you and picked up that, that there was that problem. But yeah. I think because of the prevailing stereotypes for autism, certainly that autism tends to be white males is the stereotype, you know, and and for girls, um, you know, dyspraxia wasn't even a consideration, despite yeah. the fact that was clearly a problem for me. Um, 
But I think once it got past about the age of seven or eight, which is where teachers were more concerned with the fact that I couldn't hold a pen or I yeah. couldn't get dressed or I, you know, was struggling to use stairs. Once you start getting towards secondary school, actually teaching teachers' priorities are, are they getting good grades? Are they concentrating in class? Are they, are they being disruptive? I was never disruptive. I was I was the girl who, you know, would work hard, incredibly hard and and try and not be noticed, to be honest, for my difficulties. But I was also still the girl that couldn't wash her hair or get dressed easily on her own. None of that had changed. But I think the priorities for the people around you in the world changes and they're not looking for those things, um, which makes it more and more difficult then to, to get the help that you need um and my mum certainly has told me that you know when I was 13 14 years old and and still couldn't find my way to school on my own still really struggling with a lot of it, uh, executive functioning skills as well my mum was going you know Laura needs help and the answer she was getting back is well Laura's a straight A grade student she's doing fine yeah I was doing fine academically but I wasn't doing fine in other areas so I and I think unfortunately that that has got better, but it's still the case for, for girls today that they'll often slip through the net because they mask and are able to cover up so many of these difficulties, especially girls who are, you know, I don't like the term at all myself anymore, but, you know, high functioning or yeah. able to cope. But actually, really, you're not functioning. You're just having to put in an extreme amount of effort to get by in the world. And there's payback for that at some point. So I think what we're seeing at the moment is a lot of women who, you know, are over the age of 18, really starting with that information Sophie spoke about on the internet, starting to see themselves and thinking, you know what, this makes sense now. Like, uh, I get it now. I get why I was finding everything so, so hard as a child. I completely, yeah, I've got a few uh, friends uh, who, who are women who recently, after years and years, like finally got their diagnosis because it's like exactly what you said. Like, I think women in particular, um, it is harder because all the diagnosis process are based on, like you said, white males, especially, and I think that doesn't just apply to autism but dyspraxia as well and other disabilities. Like, they just got one standard sheet, if you like, and it just hard to identify in females but I think it's slowly changing but I think the internet's a help and weirdly I know a couple of people who through TikTok that's helped and I know people started to seek diagnosis through that not that's a medical tool at all but starting to see people openly talk about their disabilities and people like you uh with your own uh, podcast I think are definitely helping so both of you do fantastic work about raising awareness, especially of dyspraxia through Girls Interrupting. Like, please, if you're listening, give them a follow on Instagram and listen to it like, and look at their content. So how did Girls Interrupted start and what was sort of like the aims and goals of uh, Girls Interrupting and how did you both meet? Um, it's really... Can I be a real pain? Oh, sorry, yeah. Sophie, can I be a real pain and go first? Of course, absolutely. Because <laughs> I was going to say, we didn't, we've never met each other in person, have we, Sophie? No. Only on the internet, <laughs> um, which I think surprises some people. Yeah. But I came across Sophie because I read a piece of writing that she wrote, which was entitled Life, um, Life in the Headlights. I think I've got that right, Sophie. But a, a long form piece of writing about her life with dyspraxia as a yeah. woman. And I was sat there going, 
yeah, this is me, this is me, this is me, this is me. And it was just so moving and, and well-written. Um, and, you know, I did a bit of internet snooping to find out more about Sophie. But I think it also just really highlighted to me. I'd never read an article like the one she'd written. No. Because all of the articles for dyspraxia were, were out there, about primarily about boys. but And I mean boys, not men as well. Yeah. So about children. Um and I'd not read something by a, a grown woman that I could relate to in that way. So I basically then got in touch with Sophie and was like, can we talk? And I'll let you go from there, Sophie. It's it's so lovely how, you know, just putting something out there about your own experience can just connect you to other people. And, you know, that first step can be the step to something amazing and just, Connecting with Laura has become something that's a real community. And, um, you know, it really just grew out of having conversations about what we what we want to see for dyspraxia for women and realising that, like, women are lacking representation and also not just lacking representation, but lacking a space to to share their own personal experience. Um, and, you know, ne we never would have thought that, we would have such a wonderful reception and you know I, I don't know about you Laura but I just feel so much more like I just feel so connected and so supported even though we've never met I feel so supported by you and also supported by all of the women on our page. Yeah definitely and I, and I think maybe we hadn't expected this but it really is a global community as well so you know we've had some really interesting conversations where other women will say well this this isn't what we're doing in Canada or this isn't what we're doing in Australia and you know that's been really enlightening and enriching I think also worth saying that you know Sophie and I cannot possibly represent every woman's experience yeah. of having dyspraxia we're, we're from a certain age group. We're both white. We're very aware of that and that there are other, you know, intersecting issues that affect people's experiences with dyspraxia. But I think what we're really aiming to do with Girls Interrupting is have an honest space where people can feel OK to to ask the yeah. stupid questions. Um, and I've been so aware of the great like role models that are already out there in the neuro um, kind of diversity space around autism or around ADHD um, or dyslexia for women um, and they just as Sophie said hasn't really been that same level of representation around dyspraxia um, and you know for me I've gained so much from some of those other communities where you're able to just yeah. go and think oh it's not just me yeah it's not I'm not alone Oh, that's really lovely to hear. Um, I know what you mean. Like when you start connecting with people in the neurodiverse community, so like how I found you is for a post one of my friends Athena did on your page where you, uh, you spotlighted her, and then that's how I found you. And I knew I wanted to relaunch the podcast and ha have it more focused on certain things. So I was like, I want to get you both on the podcast because I think it's such an important topic to do. So uh, what would be, where would you like Girls Interrupting to go? What would be your sort of aims and goals like for the future, if you have any? Yeah, um, I think that it, between me and Laura and, and the community as a whole, it's listening to what all of the women want to see. And, you know, even when you get one comment about 
you know, from from any woman that's following us about something that they want to know about or something that they'd like to see. It's about as we grow, getting a feeling from everyone. Um, you know, there's endless possibilities. We would love to do um, a retreat one day where we get in together in person. Um, you know, the potential for a podcast. Um, it would just be absolutely amazing one day to be able to meet all these women and get together. But you know, I don't know what we, me and Laura haven't had much of a chat about it because we've been we've been letting it grow naturally. Yeah. But I do, you know, I think that the future holds all sorts of things for us, which is amazing. I think it's as well, like, um, almost testing as we go, which I think a lot of people in these communities do, right? But where we're witnessing sort of series, and you, you mentioned the spotlighting, that's been quite popular, the, the Woman Crush Wednesday, <laughs> but where we feature different women, and we'd love to broaden that out and have different voices and different yes. perspectives shared through that. Um, kind of recognising there's women already out there doing amazing things in their own right. Um, I think also just, you know, respecting the fact that, uh, you know, a bit like you as well, James, a lot of us are, are doing this in our spare time as volunteers, yeah. I guess, this kind of work, if we want to call it that. But I think it's because we recognise that need, but also get enjoyment from from being able to share too. Um, but as Sophie said, I, you know, I feel the same. I'd rather this grows slowly and grows well and does that with like collaboration and consensus and from the community yeah. then try and rush and do everything um and do it badly so we're taking our time but uh, enjoying every step as we go i think <laughs> no that's really lovely and uh, you can see uh that that you've got a lovely community on the on girls interrupting page and that you're inspiring so many people to be brave and talk about openly about their disabilities especially with dyspraxia because i know that growing up for me uh, and it, it's not an easy disability to have like there's so many things that other people who don't have the disability take for granted like riding a bike doing shoelaces and other things like that all sort of coordination uh activities that we'll just got to accept that we might not be able to do or find our own way of doing it so going to talk about more personally about the disabilities for both of you now um growing up did you uh, require any extra support with your disabilities or were there things you found uh difficult or also maybe dyspraxia brought uh like positives to your lives well, see, it's it's difficult when you look back and you never knew what you had. Yeah. Because, you know, even though my parents or the people around me will have known that I had complex needs, you know, without the research, without the information, A, you don't know how to help yourself and B, the people around you how to help. So I think that, you know, I was struggling in various areas, including school, work, socially um and I was around good people but you know people are just doing their best and they're just guessing and it was the same with me so yeah. I think that um you know I'm very lucky that I did have support around me but the diff the problem is 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 how knowing how to support yourself and knowing and knowing how to ask for help yeah. um so I, I guess the positives I would think about when I look back on on having this condition is just a, a I have this underlying 
like way of looking at things, which is that things aren't what they seem. Um, and even when I didn't know what was wrong with me, I I knew that I wasn't what I seemed. And I knew that my intentions and my wants for myself were not being reflected by my, by my behavior. Um, so I'm really grateful that that's the way I look at everything now. Like, you know, I don't attach judgment to things. I always just things as open as possible without drawing any solid conclusions. And that, I think that really helps me in life because, you know, I'm, I'm just taking things in and just rolling with it. And I think that's a nice way to be. <laughs> oh, that's really lovely. How about you, Laura? Yeah, I think I was very fortunate in lots of ways. I think I had, even though my parents didn't know why I was the way I was they were incredibly supportive and I know not everybody has that and you know my mum um this speaks to something you said James you know my mum always said maybe you're going to have to do it differently but find your way of doing it and you know really supported me to keep trying to do things in different ways even though I'm sure both her and my dad got really frustrated with me sometimes as well um I think, and this is perhaps, you know, something I'm still exploring, but the interplay of being dyspraxic and now, as I know, autistic, I was never really that phased about what anyone else thought of me as a child, yeah. but I'm not sure if I actually even noticed what they thought of me, <laughs> which is probably, you know, um, slightly linked to my to my autism. But with the dyspraxia, I was very aware there were things I could not do. I could not use stairs throughout my entire childhood independently. So I needed support to go up and down stairs. And I think the thing is, often when people do think of dyspraxia, they will tend to think of, of things like, like the shoelaces and the riding the bike, which are a problem. But yeah. also there are people like myself with the, with the gross motor skill side who are who are quite profoundly affected, you know, in that I still can't use stairs independently. I require aids. I still can't, um, yeah, manage a knife and fork on my own very well. So these kinds of things I think people are less aware of. And, of course, we hide these away, right, out yeah, of shame yeah. as well, because I think if you have a physical disability, people understand why you can't use a staircase. Whereas if you're walking around the rest of the time seemingly looking um, as if you have no problem, it then is baffling to people why you suddenly can't do something. And, and of course, baffling to yourself as well sometimes why, why you look at someone else doing something and it looks so easy. And then you go to do it and you just can't get your head around the movement required, which I think is a very difficult side of dyspraxia. But in response to the second part of your question, I think I've really learned to think about dyspraxia, yes, as a disability, but not as a deficit. It's not that I'm lacking something. It's a difference rather than a deficit. Yeah. And I don't think society have caught up with that yet. But I, I think for all of us who are neurodivergent, there are advantages as well, like, you know, a big and being really organized and that's actually come out of being incredibly dis disorganized as a young person and having to put a lot into play to cope with that it's almost now become a strength because I've had to work so hard at it so I think there are things that come out of it that are very positive um but that the best thing we can do for ourselves and I think for children that we have in our lives who who have got dyspraxia is to just really encourage them to see it as a difference rather than a, a lack 
in themselves. I think you both have absolutely lovely outlooks and you're right. I agree. I don't think we should see it as a disability or disadvantage. It should be more, I don't want to say different, but you know what I mean? It should be an alternative way of doing things that it's an alternative way of living and that it does bring that advantage. I think, for example, with my autism, I think it makes autistic people are definitely more compassionate and empathetic than like neurotypical counterparts I think it's definitely an advantage and uh yeah I'm I, like one of the biggest advantage like accomplishments I think for me that probably other people take advantage is that last year I managed to pass my driving test and which I thought was I'd never be able to do when I was growing up so I was like really happy about that but I think it is trying to help I want to say inspire people, try and make people with disabilities think about their disabilities differently and think, try and think of the positives if they can. Yes. So uh, let me know if, if you think your disabilities, if they've had any impact on any friendships or relationships or if you have to make any adjustments uh, to your behaviour or if other people have made adjustments to uh, support you with your disabilities. It's a really good question. And um, I think that without a doubt, I've had um, quite a lot of difficulty in relationships. Um, yeah. But that sometimes it can feel like an imbalance um, in terms of the work that people have had to do for me. Um, to, you know, people can sometimes just slip into a carer role and you can slip into co codependence. Yeah. Which that makes any sense at all um, and it can be an uncomfortable position to be in because just naturally if somebody is stepping in and doing those things for you that take longer and just helping you when they see that that you're struggling it can mean that you know it's difficult to try and give the same amount back when you're just trying to survive and get through the day and um, so I, I think that's been one of the big difficulties where there's been where there's been a guilt on my part and me really relying on somebody in a way, especially in romantic relationships that I don't, in a way that sometimes I don't want, I don't want yeah. somebody to do things for me. But I think there's another thing as well, where people, a lot of, you know, neurotypical people can struggle to let it be done, not to the, to the optimum efficiency. To, to allow you to take longer, to do it slightly wrong, and for that to be okay. And I think that, you know, for there to be more space for you to, to struggle, yeah. I think it can be healthier for the relationship, obviously depending on, depending on the context. But I think since I'm okay with my inefficiency and it's good for, it's, it's really helpful if the people that are around me and um, can become most comfortable with that that too <laughs> if that makes any sense no that does make sense like uh i i agree with you that like, i've had i've actually been told sometimes with previous friends they're not friends now but um that they've uh, felt like they've had to be a carer but that's not what i want i want to be independent <laughs> they felt like they had to take it on themselves to fill uh, a care role but it's like I'm 30 now. I definitely don't like I'll accept help and ask for help if I need it, but I don't want someone to automatically just do it unless I'm really, really struggling. How about you, you, Laura? 
I think I've had very different experiences, but also still problems. I, I think this might um, yeah, resonate with other women in particular listening in that I think I've often had this problem of being perceived as too much by other people, quite intense. I've never been a big fan of small talk. And yeah. if I, um, one of my friends who is still a good friend, <laughs> described it this way quite affectionately. He said, when you friend, you friend hard. And I think that's true. Like when I, I go into a friendship, yeah, I will be quite full on because I really care about that person and I want to be a good friend and, and I want to share myself with them and get to yeah. know them as well. Like I really value that depth of interaction, but I also do understand that not everybody feels so comfortable launching straight into like the deeper meaningful stuff and that they need time to build up to that. And I think as I've got older, I've got better at not, um, not punishing myself in that way, but just kind of tempering, I guess, my curiosity a little bit about people or about wanting to share and trying to allow other people to have a bit more space and time if they need it. But equally, I've also learned to effectively not waste my time with people that are going to be judging me for being too loud or too vibrant or too passionate about things. They're probably just not my people. So I think I've also got better at um, channeling my energy into to the friendships that matter. And I'm very fortunate. I've been married uh, 15 years now and yeah. I've got a husband who's, you know, my friend as well. And, you know, who really understands me well, but also can affectionately tell me to shut up sometimes where I'm going too <laughs> far with things. So um, we're a good balance for each other. But I think it's still a work in progress. I'm still learning now about friendships. I'm still learning now about relationships. And um, and maybe that's something I'll always be learning. But I think that's OK. I think that's OK to be to be that way. Um, and, yeah, hopefully leads to healthier relationships in the long run. Yeah, I think I definitely both resonate with both of you. I've been told I'm too much, but I'm very fortunate now that I have got, like, after 30 years, a small group of friends who like like me fully and understand how I'm like and why I do certain things. So that's really nice to see. So what would you say are both of your proudest moments and biggest achievements? And what positives uh, would you say? Actually, I've done that bit. Yeah, what, what are your proudest moments and biggest achievements? <laughs> Sophie. I love that question. Um, and the reason I love that question is because I don't actually think I have ever answered it to myself. Um, and um, recently I was reading through notes on my phone from years ago yeah. and I'd, what I would what I would love for myself and my dream um, in life. And I was my bar for myself was so simple and you know it's like you said earlier about never imagining that you'd be able to drive and you know for so many dyspraxic people that isn't that isn't possible and and, and that must be so difficult for them and yeah. um, ever considered for a minute that I in my wildest dreams that I'd be able to drive and and all I'd written down for myself was I wanted to write I wanted a dog and I wanted um to drive and those were so like wildly impossible yeah. to me and I have those things and that's basically more than I ever would have thought so you know the fact you know the, the small wins you know just to say it out loud that I finished my degree and um, 
I am running a business and that I drive a car and I run and I and that I run a household um is for me basically anything else from now on is is a bonus. <laughs> oh, that's all really lovely. And I agree that it's the thing you really appreciate if you've got like dispatcher or any disability in particular, like the things people take for granted. So yeah, no, you should be really proud of yourself for those. And what about you, Laura? I'm, I don't set many boundaries for myself. I'm like the absolute opposite where I think I can, I don't know, be a space woman or something, you know, like things that are definitely not going to achieve. But uh, <laughs> I've achieved quite a lot that I'm proud of. But it, I think the things that I'm proudest of are the things that are perhaps the world would see as less achievement worthy, but to me were big. And I suppose it is still a big thing as far as the world's concerned. But I did a few years ago, I did a marathon, which is obviously quite a big thing anyway. But I I set it for myself because I can't even run properly. I run like a dinosaur, like a T-Rex, you know, with, like, with my arms up in front of me. And and I'm not a graceful runner. I, I look like Phoebe out of Friends, for anyone who's seen that episode where <laughs> she runs. I'm awful to be next to. But my body, my body that fails me so often managed to run 26.2 miles not far not elegantly zero grace but it did that and I kind of think so for me I was really proud of that you know more than things I've perhaps achieved through work or I've achieved you know in in through education or other spheres where I've always found those things easier um but yeah the physical stuff actually that was that was hard that was really hard training for that and um and I'm not doing another one that's amazing, <laughs> it's done <laughs> yeah oh, that's brilliant well done and so final question uh what advice would you give to anyone who's perhaps got a disability and maybe not feeling confident or like is struggling question and um, I was thinking the other day about what what the world would look like if there was the the neurodivergence with the majority and how neurotypical people would feel and I think that you know neuroty- neurotypical people would start to question a lot of their attributes and a lot of their qualities so when you're outnumbered you can feel like there's something wrong with you but being a minority and having and and having different needs you know if there was if there if there were all of these workplaces were majority neurodivergent who knows what the world would look like in so many different ways and i think the advice that i would give is just to to think that when you are a fish out of water that is really it's really hard not to to look at yourself and question yourself but really but really we are special and remarkable in ways that nobody else can think and nobody else can be and you know that is magical it really is I think that's really lovely how about you Laura how am I meant to top that Sophie (laughs) (laughs) um no I just one piece of advice basically that I think speak to yourself as you would speak to a friend I think so many of us, especially those of us who are neurodivergent, are really good encouragers of others. We're, you know, James, you mentioned the empathy. I think that is a strong feature for so many neurodivergent people. And we're very good at putting ourselves in other people's shoes. We're often far less 
compassionate about ourselves and you know the struggles we might face so speak to yourself as you would a good friend and build yourself up that way I love that that is beautiful yeah and what a lovely way to end the podcast I just want to say thank you both so much for coming on it's been really lovely talking to you and please if you're listening to this please look at look out on girls interrupting on instagram and all other platforms like, it is absolutely brilliant just want to say thank you so much again thank you so much for having us thank you, thank you. yeah thank you james it's been great thank you yeah, it's been a pleasure speaking to you